0: Hi, and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. This is the conversation that crowdsources the broadest range of female mentors each week to share their advice, their thoughts, their perspective, and their stories, what's worked for them that may also work for you. One thing we know for sure, one size does not fit all when it comes to women. And while we oftentimes will struggle with many of the same things, our solutions and our paths may be very, very different. That notwithstanding, I constantly am seeking women whose stories offer a compelling take on the challenges that so many of us face, things that can knock us off track if we allow them to. The women who join me consistently show us that that does not have to be the case. In fact, the challenges are often the reason why they ultimately find their calling and achieve tremendous success. The incredible Francine Lafrecque is my guest today. She is an award-winning television, theatrical, and film producer turned social entrepreneur. Her primary focus is advocating for women and female entrepreneurship. Francine is actually a trailblazer in helping to create Economic models that are self sustaining and that are grounded in a philosophy of opportunity and empowerment through work. What an incredible, incredible goal. This value is deeply embedded in the mission of her foundation, the Francine A. Lafrec Foundation, as well as its subsidiary, Same Sky. And for those who are listening today, take a look at the show notes for this episode. I'll include a couple of photographs of one of the beautiful bracelets that is manufactured by the Same Sky Foundation. You'll find them at samesky.com. Francine, welcome to She Said, She Said.
1: Thank you, Laura.
0: I'm so happy to have you here. Your story and your perspective have been such an inspiration. I've really loved doing the research on you for this interview. For our audience listening, one of the things that really jumped out at me is that I've heard you described as a Philanthro Capitalist. What does that mean?
1: The greatest philanthropy is a job, not a handout. And I believe so strongly in the hand up, not a handout model. And when I went to Rwanda, which we'll talk about, and met the women there, and saw how talented they were with their hands, giving them money was not going to give them dignity Mm -hmm. and it would never give them the security they needed. Earning a living was going to give them dignity and giving them a job was the most important thing that I could do because that would give them respect. That would give them an opportunity for their children to sleep on mattresses and literally be safer in their community because they're earning a living, based on their own skills, and that's what the dignity of work is. So when I became a philanthropist, I wanted to kind of turn it around and become a philanthropist that had an impact. And the greatest impact is when people have their own jobs, their own talent, you give them tools to be better, Mm -hmm. you give them tools to succeed, and then they fly. And the vision of watching them fly is such a great treat for me. So that's the kind of philanthropist that I wanted to be. One of the things
0: that's so interesting about your background is that you spent the first, the biggest part of the first part of your career in film and television and theater, winning awards and producing incredible productions and films. And you had an experience that really caused you to make a pretty big pivot. Talk about what happened and what that pivot was because this was really the spark that introduced you to the challenges in Rwanda in a big way.
1: I wanna talk about it in the context of skills being portable and learning that we all have portable skills. The last place I ever expected to go to and open a business was Rwanda. But life takes you on a journey and the things you believe in inform what you do and you have to kind of go with it. And, and that's kind of what happened to me. I was developing a film on the Rwandan genocide at Fox Studios and we had um, Helen Hunt and Jaiman Hansu when we were in pre-production when Hotel Rwanda was released, and all of a sudden, I get a call from the president of Fox saying, we're not gonna proceed with your film. And I had spent about three years researching the Rwandan genocide, where you know, in 1994, a million people were murdered in hundred days, and 70% of the women who got raped developed HIV. Mm and the women were just waiting to die the women had no hope they were so poor they couldn't even afford transportation to pick up free medication and i couldn't get this out of my mind i i felt like i can't do a film that sheds light about it Mm -hmm. what am i going to do and i knew that the women were incredibly talented with their hands and I said, um, a friend of mine said, you know, you've always been good with jewelry. And so I decided, well, what if I started a jewelry business in Rwanda and gave the women a job, not a handout, and see what happens? Yeah. You know, so we started by making these bracelets where we, all the beads came from America and FedEx would ship them. And we started with four women and we got up to 200 women. Wow. But I saw the impact of employment on these women. And to give you an example, there was Clementine. Clementine couldn't read or write uh, in Rwandan, she didn't have a bank account, her HIV numbers were off the charts. Mm-hmm. She goes to the doctor and the doctor said, Clementine, what are you doing? Your numbers are so good. What happened? She said, I have a job. <gasps> Is that Clementine right? learned how to open a bank account. She learned how to read and write. And she ev- even gave birth to a non-HIV baby. Wow. So I saw firsthand the impact of what that does when you do pivot. I mean, it was very frightening for me going to Rwanda the first time, I'll admit it. And I never thought that Africa would have that impact on me that it has on people. You know, when people go to Africa, you know, it's this incredible experience in their life. But for me, the minute I got off the plane, the minute I met firsthand with the women, I mean, I was sold. So you know, it was like a light switch. and you know, that's what happens in life. You're not really prepared for that sort of thing. But it was life affirming and it changed the whole direction. And there I pivoted and started a jewelry company. Did people say I was crazy? Absolutely. Did people want to know why I was giving up show business? But my heart really led me in this direction and my empathy. And I think what you what I got for it was so much greater than what I gave. Which is amazing. So the company is called Same
0: Sky. Talk about where the name comes from. I think it's kind of obvious, but
1: talk a little bit about why Same Sky. I I just sat, the, the name came to me in a flash. And I said, Same Sky. We're all under the same sky. We see the same stars and the same moon. And then I looked at it on a piece of paper and my dad's name was Sam and my mother was Ethel. And I said, I don't know, in a flash. And I love the name because it's so poetic and yet so profound. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, time one
0: goes off to a country like Rwanda to help provide economic assistance or or any kind of assistance to another country. Talk about maybe some of the challenges and obstacles that you had with existing government infrastructure there, or maybe what support you were able to get. Talk a little bit about that piece of the journey.
1: You know, it's it's, it's a very surprising journey because Rwanda, after the devastation, was left with 70% women. And the president knew that the women needed to have a voice in rebuilding Rwanda. So 64% of the parliament is made up of women. Healthcare is informed by women. In other words, right now, if you need breast medication and you're a farmer, they have zip lines, they have drones that deliver breast medication. Women's healthcare is like the best in Africa in Rwanda. But I couldn't get over Rwanda. There's Wi-Fi on the buses. My cell phone worked better there than in New York. The roads are the smoothest, not like Madison Avenue, you know. <laughs> it was it was a wake-up call for what happens when women inform public policy. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much the basic obstacles that we had weren't so much that had to do with with governmental or whatever. It's working in a country where the women speak a different language and we had to send everything. We had to send the thread, we had to send the tools, we had to send everything. But what was so incredible about it was their talent. That, you know, I'll give you an, this is a great example, this necklace, which I took to 47th Street and I said, can you make me a necklace like this? And they said, are you out of your mind? You can't get this in America. This is so time consuming at, you know, one bead at a time. You can't, nobody makes this in America. You go to Rwanda and they like make it in a a flash, you know, they so talented with their hands and, You know, I do believe talent is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. And if we could encourage talent and share talent, imagine what the society would be. So in other words, as a producer from Hollywood and a producer on Broadway, my producing skills helped me in Rwanda tremendously to 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 understand what I needed to do, encourage and inspire and market and get the thing going. I mean, if you had told me that at this point in my life, I'd be running a jewelry business in Rwanda or anything like that, I would have laughed.
0: It's amazing. It's really amazing. So the experience in Rwanda also informed your work in the United States as well. And you've been very instrumental in helping provide opportunities for women that are coming out of incarceration type situations. Talk a bit about how that particular challenge got your attention and the impact that you're
1: having there.
0: And sort of what the differences are between what you're doing in Rwanda and what you're
1: doing in the US. In 1990, I made a film for HBO, the first film I produced called Prison Stories, Women on the Inside. And it dealt with mothers in prison and the children they left behind. And I couldn't believe even then that women were the fastest growing segment percentage-wise of the prison population. For every woman in prison, 80% have two children. What happens to those children? But what was the recidivism rate? The recidivism rate is around 70 or more percent within the first two years. And I have always, you know, while I was working in Rwanda and learning all these lessons in Rwanda, I realized that poverty in America is such a big problem. Over 40 million people live below the poverty line. And if I could start with anyone, it's the women coming out of prison. What do they have? What are they where are they going? What did they and so I said, if the women in Rwanda can make jewelry, why can't the women coming out of prison make jewelry? And I had a friend named Jim McGreevy, the former governor of New Jersey who was working at Hudson County Jail. And he said to me, you know, I have this big problem. I have these women coming out of prison. I can't get anyone jobs. So I said, I'll give them a job. So <laughs> I go back to my office and I said, guess what? We're going to work at a halfway house in Jersey city on Martin Luther King Boulevard. And are you ready to go? And they all started screaming, ready? uh, We can't do this. And I said, yes, you can. And so we went to Jersey city and started working with the women. And just like the women in Rwanda, the women worked around a table and around this table They felt comfortable, almost like a knitting bee, Mm -hmm. telling each other stories, sharing their fears, their anxieties, and feeling like they weren't alone. Because that's the biggest problem with women, is feeling like you're alone. And here at this table, they could start dreaming again. And there's something very therapeutic about working with your hands and one bead at a time. And the women started to think maybe I'll go back to school or maybe I'll you know, open an art gallery or have a pie business. And it, it just was this wonderful feeling and what the women were doing in Jersey City was so similar to what had happened in Rwanda. And I realized that the model of creating employment, creating training and giving these people the tools that was the success model, going from invisible to visible. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can tell you great stories. Barbara, for instance, was one of them. And she, I said, you know, we're going to the Jersey City Mall for Christmas. We're going to open a kiosk at the, Jer- at the mall at Jersey city. And Barbara said to me, that's the mall I, I shoplifted from six times and pepper sprayed the policeman. I said, Barbara, you paid for your crime. We're gonna go back to the mall. She said, well, could I be in charge of security? And I said, of course you can be. I mean, inside I'm dying. I can't even believe this is happening. Right. So we go back to the mall. And we go to the mall and Barbara starts um, talking to people as they came to the table. And she said, sir, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. If you don't come and look at these bracelets or miss, what's your favorite color? I'll make a bracelet in your favorite (laughs) color. And I realized, you know, she had so much talent in selling. And then this other part of Barbara came out, which was, at the table, she started, you know, she was very good at counting the beads and bossing the other women around. And I said, Barbara, you're a natural manager. Maybe you need to go back to school. And she started taking courses. So with my own eyes, I've seen the transformation that happens. And the girls in, in you know, in this um, transitional home, you know, one got a job at Supercuts, And I love that story because she said, one day I'm going to open my own salon and I'm going to have a red carpet because every woman deserves to walk down the red carpet. As I said, one worked for Blue Apron, one got a job at UPS and got health insurance and she got her children back. For these women, buying a birthday card is a huge thing. I mean- You know, what I learned from Rwanda and what I learned from the women in Jersey City is it's just, it made me a much more real person, you know, and it made me value what I have so much and appreciate what we all have. And it gave me such a richness that I could interact with these women and I could understand the courage they have, especially... Working with the women in Rwanda who survived a genocide, but yet are about reconciliation and hope. And I always, you know, think about the two women that worked next to each other, and one of their husbands murdered the other one's husband. Wow. And yet they had to focus on their children and their future and their health, and they didn't have time to hate each other. And I? I always say the, the mind is a dangerous place to wander alone. Because, you know, if you're busy, if you're focused, you don't have time to go to those dark places. And the women in Rwanda taught me about forgiveness. And it's such an important lesson. Yeah. Another thread through both of these experiences is this notion of
0: community and network. And you've given these women an opportunity to really be part of something that's a shared experience. Talk about the power of that and why that's important.
1: Well, I want to do it in context of my next move, which was in my philanthropy, I got involved with the Women in Need Homeless Shelter, which is in New York City. They have a few homeless shelters. The one that we work with is in East Harlem. And I started the Francine A. LaFrague training program, computer training program, which is a six-week course. Now, this was another eye-opener for me because who's in a homeless shelter? We had a doctor from the Ivory Coast. We had a woman who had a master's degree in chemistry. We had healthcare workers, teachers. We had how do you get into a homeless shelter? Well, let me tell you, women can get in a homeless shelter. It's so easy if you fall off the grid or you you get a divorce or you have illness in your family. And it's quite shocking to see who's in the homeless shelter. But we started doing, we've had eight graduations in the homeless shelter. And I want to give you the feedback because these women get a network. They network with each other. They support each other. As I said, they're not invisible. Mm. And they start to feel confidence, which is another big issue for women, the lack of confidence. And you know, I'd love to talk more about that. But having that network is so critical to not being alone. And I wanna tell you something that I noticed. I have a few friends that have lost their husband and I see how they get disconnected. And I understand a little bit about the mourning process, but I also think as women, we have to work hard with our networks to stay connected. And COVID was a great example of it. At a certain point I said to myself, you know, I miss so many people, and I decided I would make a list and reach out to so many people to just say, How are you? I'm thinking about you. I'm sheltered in place in New York City. You know, I just, and I did around the world, I sent these emails out because I felt it was important to stay connected to my network. I didn't want to lose them. And it was so easy for us to cocoon and to to be disconnected. I know I'm not the only one that feels this way. Absolutely. Well, you know, COVID has had such a tremendous
0: impact in so many different ways, um, including in your, again, pivoting your, your philanthropic focus to some degree to look at problems that are more sort of acute to where you live and very intense. You are in New York City. Um, and New York City has been particularly hard hit. Talk a little bit about how you've pivoted um, your philanthropy to really address some of the issues with hunger there in New York.
1: You know, women and girls, empowering women, giving voice to women, training women, that's my focus and that's my lane. But I couldn't sit here and watch on television the long food lines and looking at those people and seeing I'm sure they were never on a food line before, and they're hungry mm. and what impacted me was the idea that Queens is the epicenter of the virus, and Queens is the heart and soul of New York it's where the healthcare care workers are it's where the bus drivers are, it's where the cashiers are, and they had the the biggest outbreak of COVID and they were impacted the most. And here I am sitting, ordering food from Cinderella, literally watching the food lines and I couldn't live with myself. I said, I have to do something. So I started reaching out to food banks to try to understand who has the depth to be able to deal with. And so I found the food bank for New York City and I called them up and I said, how are you doing in Queens? They said, we're overwhelmed in Queens. They said more than 40% of the food banks closed there. Wow. Really? The food pantries closed? Why? Well, most of them were operated by the elderly. Right. And the need was 400 times greater than they could handle. So I said, well, I would like to underwrite a program where we could get food back to the people that need it most in Queens. And we figured on five neighborhoods like Elmhurst, the Elmhurst Hospital area. And we set up with the Food Bank of New York, we were able to set up food trucks and food deliveries. And with my foundation and and others that helped, we provided over 2 million meals. Wow. And I never expected, I mean, food is not my issue. But, you know, during COVID, we've had to pivot. And as a philanthropist, I've had to pivot. And, you know, uh, hearing the stories of, of the people and their gratitude has been great. But these people are not used to, they have tremendous pride. And for them to go on a food line is very difficult. And the stories that I heard, you know, in front of one church, for instance, there were immigrants that were afraid they wouldn't get food, you know. uh, And they would sleep in front of the church to make sure they were first online. But these are the kind of stories that I hear. And it just breaks your heart. But, you know, hopefully it's starting to get better. Yeah. We're still... To focusing our work, we've started this refrigeration process in Queens and, techno- and to add refrigeration and technology to deal with this mm-hmm. and also to create a center because we've stopped with the food trucks so people know what's available to them.
0: Yeah, these are, these are very different elements, right? People that are in tremendous need, but you're talking about very, very different needs how do you create an organization um, a philanthropy or a business that is able to be nimble enough to make that kind of pivot because you're talking about expertise in an area that I'm assuming your team probably your existing team probably didn't have so what's your advice for building an organization that enables you to really take advantage of and address Problem when it comes. I mean, that's what everyone's having to do with COVID. But maybe share your perspective on how to how to do that as nimbly as possible.
1: I think for me, as a philanthropist, how I describe myself is very hands-on, and I think when you're hands-on and you're in the trenches, that it's the most rewarding way to be a philanthropist because it's not. It, you don't just write a check. You're in the trenches. I mean, I speak at every graduation of the eight graduations, I'm the featured speaker at the Women in Need Homeless Shelter. I meet the women. I know what they're good at. One is good at security. One wants to be a veterinarian. But I get the joy of the hands-on feeling. And I can't tell you how important that is. And as a philanthropist, if you can not only bring your talent, but also bring your time, your energy, your network. It's a game changer. Mm. And that's what I do. And it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Can we
0: talk a little bit about how you grew up and where this, this philanthropic gene really took, took heart?
1: Well, I grew up in a family that was extremely male-dominated and women were not to have a voice. You know, and I grew up being told that I come from a a real estate family and I was told at age 13 that I would not be invited into the business. But since I loved show business, I didn't see it as a problem, but I knew I wasn't given access to that. However, as a woman, I realized in my journey how important it was for me to have this experience growing up because the idea of giving women voice became something so deep in my heart that I wanted so badly to do it. And it didn't matter which women, it just was how as as women can we fulfill our promise and our legacy? And I'm gonna answer your question in a a kind of different way. women control 60% of the money in the world and 80% of that m- money that's controlled by women is managed by men i feel so i'm such an advocate and i feel like financial literacy for women is so critical to their success i don't care if you live in poverty or you have all the money in the world you've Women have to take charge of their financial health, and I mean, we all know women that have fallen off the cliff financially, and I believe that it's such an important point. And now I want to tell you a shocking statistic, which is in the philanthropy pie, one and a half percent goes to women's causes. And that speaks to the fact that 60% of the money is controlled by women now. And in um, 2035, it will be 70% of the money. Wow. So caring about each other, supporting each other, lifting each other up and finding ways and tools to help each other is a mandate now. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's so fascinating. But going back to your question, I grew up with very philanthropic parents that were very culturally minded and wanted to give back to the communities they helped build. And my father used to say, he builds for the masses, not the classes. And what was important to him was the common man. But, you know, I always felt privileged and I always grew up knowing that I would. I wanted to give back, and I had the opportunity to do it. But it was designing the journey to find out what really spoke to me as a philanthropist and where I thought I could have an impact. Mm-hmm. And I realized it's with women. It's with women and girls. It's with education and training. And so that's where I focus my philanthropy. And boy, do I get a lot for it.
0: There's a lot of moms that listen to this podcast, not exclusively, of course, but a lot of women that are listening have kids. How do we work to inspire that sense of giving and commitment to others, similar to the way that you grew up?
1: I mean, it it all has to do with role modeling. It's like you almost can't teach it. You have to live it and be it and breathe it. What you say doesn't matter that much. What you do matters that much. And if you model it for the, for the, for your children, they will be it. Absolutely. As you
0: look back on the work that you've been doing over the last several decades, talk about how it's changed you, the impact that it's had
1: on your life. You know, I see a blank canvas and I see that I've filled in the canvas in certain ways. And as I was filling it in, it didn't make any sense. Now I see the pattern and I see the impact and, you know, it makes me very happy. I think that what it's given me is confidence. Mm. And that's as that's what women lack is confidence. And I'll give you an example of it. In 2004, I joined the Women's Leadership Board at Harvard's Kennedy School. And we started doing all this research, why girls don't do as well as boys on SATs. Hmm. And we realized why, because they're afraid to speak up and they're afraid to guess wrong. They're afraid to make mistakes. So we were able to find, you know, with this research to deliver it to the SAT board and they changed the way they grade SATs. Now, if you leave a question blank, you're not graded for it. So they've changed that. But really isn't, I mean, doesn't that say at all? You know, how can we as women speak up and develop confidence you know, doing hard work and focusing on your work builds confidence. Having a job builds confidence. You know, it's these tools that really help you. Absolutely.
0: Because you started out in a creative field, how much did that inform your maybe problem-solving skills as you saw something that was new to you in a different sector, how did, how did the creativity piece maybe inform your journey as you began to tackle some of these problems in different, different places?
1: You know, the creativity calls on all of you. So just going back to the jewelry and same sky I don't consider myself a jewelry designer, but I was always that person that I would wear something and they'd say, where did you buy it? How do I get it? You know what I mean? So I knew I had an eye. But the creativity helped me to engage all of me. You know, so as a producer, when I went to Rwanda, I could use those skills, but I could also design and market and do all these other things. And I think, you know, producing and, you know, having failure in Hollywood, or having uh, challenges on Broadway, you know, made me very strong. And I really think you put energy in one place, it pays off somewhere else everybody has dreams and they sort of see that, that I'm going to fulfill this dream this way. And guess what? It doesn't happen. You find that that energy that you spent doing this pays off in a totally different place. Go with it. Yeah. Embrace it. Believe it. It's such good
0: advice. Okay. I want to tell our listeners where they can get these amazing bracelets. I have one on. Francine has one on this is samesky.com you told me that they're actually on sale i will have this podcast posted while the sale is still going on
1: <laughs> so on wednesday till friday there's a 60% off sale you know wednesday pretty- the 23rd to friday the 25th there's a 60% off sale so if you're going to buy a piece of jewelry these are the next two days to do it. I think the sale starts at 6 a.m.
0: That's fabulous. And the, and the proceeds, of course, benefit these women who we've been talking about who are in Rwanda. They also benefit the women who are in the U.S. as
1: well. Yes. yes. Yeah, which is fantastic. And I for wanted to just tell you a story about the women in Rwanda quickly, that right now I knew that I couldn't make jewelry for the rest of my life. And so we started business training for the women in Rwanda. And to date, we've trained more than 200 women to run their own businesses with locally sourced material. And they make baskets and bags and they sell them to Target. They have their own collectives and their own union banks. And I've seen the women, you know, start their own businesses all together. And it's been so gratifying because that's the ultimate to run their own business. This is amazing. Your
0: story, you've got so many dimensions to what you've done and what you're doing and the impact that you're having. Francine, it is a joy to talk to you. Thank you for all that you're doing to help women and girls. And thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Remember to check out SameSky.com for all of the amazing jewelry, the proceeds of which benefit the women that Francine and I have been talking about today. And don't forget, as she mentioned, there's a 60% off sale from Wednesday, September the 23rd through Friday, September the 25th. So if you're listening during that window, be sure to check out SameSky.com.
1: Happy shopping. Absolutely.
0: It's so important for our listeners to hear from people like you who chart out in one direction, go a very different way because you're finding this meaning and impact that you're getting from the help that you're able to offer these women. So it's really amazing.
1: So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: To learn more about my amazing guest today, Francine Lefrec, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 119. Remember, you will always find the broadest crowdsourced mentorship right here at She Said, She Said podcast. I'd love to know what you think about this episode or any others and what topics you'd like to hear more about. If you're listening on your iPhone, I would also be grateful if you'd take a quick screenshot and share it on your Instagram. Please tag me at Laura Cox Kaplan and the podcast at She Said, She Said podcast. As always, I'm grateful that you spent your time with us today. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.